Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast is for Danny Elfman only. Matt, we are back with another episode off of Even Worse. Uh, yeah. We are talking about what what we have found is a bit of a divisive track. It is it is either people's least favorite Al song or like top five Al songs. And you found us a great guest. I found an amazing, amazing guest. I went digging through my contacts list and I found uh, one of my oldest friends in the world. Uh, I have known this person since we were in I guess technically even like goes back to like middle school but we became friends in high school but we've known each other ever since we've played in bands together a wonderful musician uh who goes by uh C. Philip Zarina who I think we're just going to call Phil from now on but C. Philip Zarina (laughs) welcome to the show for the rest of my (laughs) day Thank you for having me, guys. That's more intro than I deserve. Oh, come on. Uh, Stop that. I think I technically met you when I was in second grade, Matthew. S- see, that's, I mean, it's it's crazy. Um, Phil's a little bit younger than me, so he actually initially was good friends with my younger brother. Um, but then it turned out they had nothing in common, and we had a lot in common. So, you know, it's one of those things where as you get older, those age differences don't really matter anymore. There was certainly a period where I was like, I'm not talking to this little kid. <laughs> but I I have had that with some of my little brother's friends too. Yeah, there or you my, go. Right, w- my brother moved to Georgia, and I still hang out with some. Of <laughs> See, it's friends. funny how that happens. I love that, <laughs> Phil. This is like I said in the beginning. I've heard people talk about how they absolutely hate this song. It's it's the song that they're most likely to skip on even worse. And then there's other people who really consider this, you know, in the same breath as like a a dare to be stupid on just like knocking it out of the park on the style parody, completely getting the entire Oingo Boingo vibe and just being a masterpiece. What led you to decide that this was the song you wanted us to talk about this week? So yeah, for me, it's one of those top five dare to be stupid level, life-changing, perfect Al songs. And uh, it was also part of how when I was younger, I mean, when I was in elementary school, I was such a weird Al kid. And I kind of went through... So I wonder if other guests have talked about this or if you guys have talked about this. Um, this You go through a teenage phase where you're like, I'm too cool for that silly thing. 
And then you end up circling back to it once you're like, oh no, it was it was good taste I had to be into Weird Al, not bad. And this was part of that, though, because I went through exactly that, you know. I had my Weird Al years as a child, and then at some point I realized I was way too cool and way too serious about music. At you know, at the age of eleven or twelve, uh, I was going to listen to serious artists like yeah. the Foo Fighters, and um, yeah, and then but then you know you start off listening to the Foo Fighters, and then you end up listening to Queens of the Stone Age because of it, and so forth and so on, until you start going backward into cooler, and you develop your own taste. And a couple of the bands that by the time I was in, you know, eighth or ninth grade, I was really getting into were bands like the Talking Heads or. Boingo Boingo. And I had this weird moment with those two and with Elvis Costello and, and and Devo where I went, wait, all of the bands that I like most are the bands that I heard Weird Al do style parodies of when I thought those were just his originals because I didn't understand what a style parody was when I was nine. Yeah. I just, I knew Eat It was a parody, and I thought yeah. anything that wasn't a parody was just Weird Al writing a song, that's it. Holy shit, at some point when I was mm-hmm. uh, 16, 17, and had that realization, and this was like the center focal point of that. Yeah. No, it's funny, we've, I, I think we haven't touched on it a ton, but a little bit, the idea of, I had said before as well, like, being into Al at a young age and Bad Hair Day was like this big, incredibly important record for me at a young age. We've also talked before about how for a huge number of years, it's like there was no 10 year old boy in the world who didn't go through a Weird Al phase of some kind because it was just such a thing. Yeah, I had the same experience and stepped away and then became like a huge fan of bands like They Might Be Giants and then trace the lineage back. And suddenly it's like, did Al just put all this like is everything that I know through Al's inception of his taste? through these records. It is a crazy yeah. thing to think about. Uh, with this particular song, this was definitely one that I didn't... When I bought the even worse cassette tape originally, it was pretty much just the parodies for me. I would skip past all of the originals, had very little interest in it. And it wasn't until I was listening to... i just gotten into podcasting, and one of the shows, of one of the early shows that I started listening to was Comedy Death Ray, uh, mm. which later became Comedy Bang Bang with Scott Aukerman. Yeah. And on that show, not only would he do these goofy guests, but he would play songs in between segments. Um, And they would always be very like Dr. Demento style. It was a huge Dr. Demento throwback. And I forget who the guest was, but they were like, I'm going to play my favorite Weird Al song. And they played You Make Me. And then they had like a good 10, 15 minute conversation about like the brilliance of that song. And it made me kind of go back to the entire even worse record because I was like, I think I'm missing a lot in my brain for this guy's career. And that was probably the biggest moment where I got fully immersed back into the world of, of weird Al was, was through rehearing you make me for the first time when I was in college. There's so much to analyze in this song. And to a certain point, yes, the lyrics, Al has jokingly said, this is the closest thing to a love song he's ever written. I love that. I love that line a lot because it does make as completely nonsensical and it was funny because we were talking about another song on this record we already talked about which was the stuck in a closet with vanna white which is every line of that song is nonsense like but by design it's he's just talking about a dream he's had it's absurdity and it's just surrealism and this song has a lot of that surrealism in it but if you think about it as the through the lens of a love song which is you know what it is supposed to be like what it's about is it's about the insane feelings and thoughts and emotions you have in when you're deep 
deeply infatuated with somebody. It's just yeah. you you go and you go crazy. <clears throat> but the sounds, the sounds that he creates on that keyboard throughout this song, like beyond the fact that he absolutely nails the chaos of Oingo Boingo's sound, but like yeah. the moment that takes this mo- that the moment that elevates this song for me is something so weird. It's the synth sound that he uses on what I guess what you could call the pre-chorus. It's the line that he sings before the you make me's in each verse. But the one I, I would... There's really that something kind of strange about you, yeah, baby, the, but I can't that exactly see my like finger on it. Keyboard but the, yeah, like that yeah. part. But there's this like... Like, like keyboard... Yeah, yeah, oh my God. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah, fuck, yeah. That's like what nails it for me. I'm like, that is... That's what like takes this song in my eyes from like a maybe middle of the road owl song to something as tiny as that is like such a specific focus on the type of sounds you would hear in the original artist music that just yeah. elevates it so much higher. <laughs> I had a weird journey on this song when Matthew asked me to, <laughs> if I wanted to be a guest and if so, what song I wanted to do. And I think this was my first pick, right, Matthew? I didn't... Uh... And I was just lucky to that it wasn't taken because everybody hates it. But I chose it because yeah. I love it. And then in preparing <laughs> for this, I was like, let me listen to it a bunch. And let me listen to Oingo Boingo a bunch. And I actually got really critical of it. Like I started yeah. like go, I started regretting it a little because I was I was <laughs> listening to it in the context of kind of a being it with the Oingo Boingo record only a lad. And I was like, you know what? These production sounds are actually kind of off. And it has this like throw in a bar of, depending on how you want to think of it, a bar of two or a box uh, thing that's like classic Oingo Boingo across all their records. But yeah. Some little time signature changes. Yeah, it's like just a little bit progressive and weird and off kilter and strange. missing something. And then I realized that it's really nothing to fear is the reference point for this. And when I... Did that. Nothing I mean, I was fear. going insane yeah. for a second. And I was like, why did I think this was good? He tricked me. And <laughs> I thought it was perfect, but it's not. <laughs> and and I, Matt, like, I, <laughs> I went yeah. as far as to um, start going like, you know what? Maybe for the podcast, what I should do is I should record my version and, and nail the sounds that I'm hearing not nailed. Like, why is there a bass guitar here when the reference point would be more of a synth bass sound? You know, all these things. And, I, and then I circled back around and was like, oh, I'm just an idiot and Weird Al's yeah. smarter than me. And he crushed it. But um, there's some very specific references, <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, in yeah. this song, style-wise, across Nothing to Fear. And you get these like mallet percussion sounds and those anvil sort of percussions that you hear on songs like Grey Matter, which I think is the opener of the record. Yeah. Um, Wild Sex has like that anvil clanging thing that we get throughout Al's tribute to it. Um, throughout like the bass sounds, the overall production yeah. sounds, the synth sounds. I think that um, Jim West crushes it on this because A, it's a super restrained part. He's not playing for huge chunks of it. Yeah, And on the solo, he nails the sound and the style of Steve Bartek, yeah. who is such a huge part of Oingo Boingo. He's the he's the guy behind the scenes for everything Danny Elfman's done his whole career. He, all of his film scores, Bartek orchestrates them, like, even though they're his yeah. compositions. And uh, they nailed that, too. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they've stayed close. But what I like about when he does these type of style parodies, and we talked about this with Devo and um, Talking Heads already. Like, 
the gift of it is you're right. It's mostly pulled from nothing to fear more than any other record. But like Al is so good at like, I almost feel like this boils down all of it. Like this is like, even in tiny ways, I feel like there's elements of like the mystic Knights of Wingo Boingo still like kind of scattered in this. Like it is just as, as much as he can do, Hey, in four minutes, can I, can I create a song that sums up a 20 year career of a band? Exactly. Like he somehow did it. And (laughs) so, and so really quick before we get more down this road, because I want to make sure people know, because I actually think that maybe a part of the reason why this isn't as beloved is because Oingo Boingo is not a band that people know as well at this point in time over the years. Like I feel like Oingo Boingo has faded and they were very popular for a little while. For people who do not know Oingo Boingo, it was the like sort of post-punk new wave band yeah, uh, but, of the I guess mm-hmm. they started in the late 70s or only a lad came out in 81. They, they were so mid 70s was yeah. when they were like the vaudeville act. Right. Yes, and and like yeah. this is and the we big have to thing talk about the gong show and all that stuff too. There's well, a I lot. was gonna say he yeah. references gong show <laughs> exactly. in the lyrics, yes. and that's like where they got their big break. Like it's like little shit like that. That's huge. there's there's a lot of little things here, but <laughs> but big picture, they they were a band that had a few reasonably successful records. They did okay, but then the front man Danny Elfman left, and if you don't know the name Danny Elfman, you definitely know his work because he has done like. Every Tim Burton thing. He has done everything Tim Burton. He's a composer now, and he does film scores. He did the theme to The Simpsons, which is maybe the most iconic thing possibly he has made, but he did Pee-wee's Big Adventure. He did Edward Scissorhands, all the, like we said, all the uh, uh, Tim Burton stuff. Um, uh, I did a a rundown here. He did, like, Men in Black. He did the Spider-Man, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie. I mean, his resume, he, he is so much more known now as a composer, and he's, like, arguably one of the most successful composers of the current age. Recently, he did a little bit of throwback. He, he Oingo Boingo did like as close to a reunion show as they have ever done only a couple years ago. Um, but it tracks. They were, I mean, we've already established that Al had a love of Devo, which he's already covered here, but Oingo Boingo are definitely right there alongside bands like Devo at this point in time as being a pop artists who are making radio friendly music, but who are definitely left of center and doing really weird, interesting things. And as you can hear in this song, even if you don't know Oingo Boingo enough to know the references, all the weird little stylistic stuff that's in this track is very pulled from, from that band. Yeah, absolutely agree. Yeah. And (laughs) the gong show thing is they did, this is mandatory. If you are listening to this, it, this is mandatory viewing, okay? You have yes. to go on YouTube and you have to watch Oingo Boingo on the gong show in the, I guess that must have been in the 70s, right? That was the Mystic Knights of Oingo the, Boingo. The Mystic Knights so, of Oingo Boingo, so, I apologize. So the, that was two, the, the two name. separations, yes. the two separations is the Mystic Knights of Oingo Boingo was led by Danny Elfman's brother, Richard Elfman. Yes. Um, And it was a full like vaudeville throwback. It yes. was abstract it was strange it sometimes even bordered on like shockingly mean-spirited and richard elfman started to want to him and his other co-founder matt brightman wanted to start making films instead so they were going to make a mystic knights of oingo boingo movie which they eventually did complete called forbidden zone which is 
you will either love it or you will find it disgusting. Like it's it's one of those two categories. I have not it's seen depends. that. That's probably something I have to check out. It is throwback to vaudeville in every single essence, <laughs> and I will stress that. Yeah, meaning that there will be blackface. There will be. It is every aspect wow. of vaudeville okay. in a like trippy sci-fi horror yeah. movie. It's wild. <laughs> but it has all that like Cab Calloway yeah. sort of throwback yeah. stuff. And while and, making yeah. that movie, that's kind of when they were like, we just want to focus on films and then passed the band to Danny who then gotcha. was like, well, I like this synthesizer new wave stuff that's happening. But yes, the Mystic Nights of Oingo Boingo is very much what that stage show was. So it's like costumes and like explosions and like yeah. chaos for like a well, minute and a half on the gong show right away <laughs> the thing i love is that the very first configuration of the band is the a piano player and an accordion player and a drummer but then as soon as they start playing a horn section comes out and there's someone dressed as a dinosaur <laughs> is marching across the stage and they're definitely playing a, a piece of music but it's pretty hard to track what's going on it's just this insane visual experience and they don't get gonged they actually get to play their entire song and get judged <laughs> they get judged at the end by buddy hackett <laughs> sherry lewis and bill bixby who all <laughs> love them <laughs> yeah and they win that episode of the gong show and my favorite part is at the very end they're like congratulations you're the winners and they get handed a check for 516 dollars and 32 cents <laughs> for I don't know enough about the gong show to know why that amount of money is what was given to them, but boy, did that tickle me that that was the big prize. split across all 30 of them. I know, just all 30 people. Like, ooh, that's tough, even back then. My my other favorite, (laughs) if you're going to take the time to watch that minute video, I do also just, for shits and giggles, my other favorite gong show moment. um, Look up Green Jello performing on the gong show. Ooh, I haven't seen that. Oh, God, I have not seen that. Yeah, their intention was literally to just get gonged they're like we just want to be on television so they do rock and roll uh pumpkin (laughs) and they get maybe 30 seconds into the song before they get gonged but it's the faces that they have of complete utter disbelief (laughs) like they they just they uh, it's like picture perfect acting where they all just look like how how could we not be the people that made it? I, I, I did see, apparently, Danny Elfman said somewhere, I read this online, that he was pretty disappointed that they didn't get gonged. Like, yeah. I think he was hoping, because it was kind of like you win either way on that. Like, if you got yeah, gonged you and it, you were so insane, yeah. um, like, that was a badge of honor in and of itself. So that's that's the the short story to oingo boingo well yeah so so that point about the you know the the two phases of the band starting with that vaudeville thing that's how you end up with a lineup where if you look at the chronology of it you have horn players who were in it for longer than danny elfman and steve bartek the leaders of the band by that predate them by three years you know guys like sluggo their saxophonist and you know other guys who mm. were in the band for three years longer than the people who are the band, atypical. But also, they have this really similar both origin story and career trajectory to the guys in Devo. Because you have this brother relationship where one guy starts it and the other guy yeah. takes it over. And it's the same time period. And then you have this same, <laughs> you know, career trajectory of having this wildly popular in this niche sort of way new wave band that then the primary composer or composers go on to have this film scoring career in a big way and it is sort of this inverse thing where 
Oingo Boingo is the less popular band between the two, but Danny Elfman is the more accomplished film yeah. composer later on. Not to knock Mark Mothersbaugh, who did some great work with... Uh, no, but Danny Elfman is certainly more has a more more yes, name recognition than Mark yeah. Mothersbaugh. Yeah, that's you know, for sure. Uh, Mothersbaugh did great stuff yeah. with Wes Anderson. You know, Royal Tenenbaums. He composed all those great little like string. Oh yeah, no, he's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Very but. successful. His rendition of "Hey Jude" that kicks off uh, Royal Tenenbaums is genuinely my favorite performance of "Hey Jude." Like, I think it's great. Don't get me started little... on "Hey Jude." It, I say it's more of a testament to uh, to how huge uh, Danny Elfman is yeah. that uh, Mark Mothersbaugh, by comparison, is nothing. You know. <laughs> oh my god! You know, you guys probably there was a chance of getting him as a guest. Well, not anymore. And... <laughs> not anymore. Also, I forgot. I'm sorry. I'm putting I'm all my energy Danny into Elfman. getting Danny Elfman as a guest. <laughs> We listed all of the Danny Elfman <laughs> stuff, and I forgot to mention, of course, you know, the man who did did the music for the Fifty Shades of Grey franchise as well. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> this is where I'm focusing my energy. And, I mean, we were, this, we're getting there anyway, but uh, Al performed with Danny Elfman only like a year and a half ago. They did a stage production of The Nightmare Before Christmas. Danny Elfman also wrote. I don't know if I mentioned that. And he's the singing voice of Jack Skellington. And he is the singing voice of Jack Skellington. And Al came out and they did a stage production and Al sang and performed as part of the show. And there's a great, I think there's a bunch of YouTube clips of it, but you can watch a fantastic video of um, them singing uh, Kidnap the Sandy Claws. Uh, and it is Danny Elfman, Weird Al, and Paul Rubens. Love and it. it is wonderful. Is this the part of the show where we're going to talk about how we should uncancel Paul Rubens? <laughs> I think that the world has already gotten. I think it like, just sort of happened on so its too. own, right? It was yeah. that is there has never been a more like frustrating scenario where it's like, look, was his dick out? Probably. <laughs> Was his dick out in a porno theater? <laughs> like, I think we can slow slow the roll a little bit here. It does seem it like... It seems like one of those rare places where that is <laughs> quite possibly... Expected? Maybe not literally allowed, but socially <laughs> yeah. allowed. Yeah, it's hard uh, to imagine someone having too legitimate an objection. But yeah. I don't, I mean, I, it was also at a time, of course, he was hosting a children's program. So Yeah, that didn't it help was, things. It did, I just, help. I just it did not help at that point. We're here on this show to uncancel people. Yeah, that's a actually the low-key secret of this. This is just the first week. one. Stay tuned next week. Louis. To see, to see who else we're going to exonerate publicly forever. Done deal. It gets increasingly worse. Stay tuned. The OJ episode is coming up very soon. <laughs> Thank you for watching. This will be our last episode. <laughs> Guys, I just think that Pol Pot did nothing wrong. <laughs> Please don't take us seriously, listeners. <laughs> anyway, back to this song. It's a great yes. segue into talking about this wonderful love song that Al wrote to uh, I think it someone, is a great maybe? love song. No, I, like, I actually think it to is, too. Point, I think if you were to just tweak a couple of lyrics, it's just an abstract, fun, honest song in a lot of ways, yeah. you know? And other artists could take 90% of that lyrical content and turn it into something that is received in a completely earnest way, you know? Yeah, totally. I mean, it's it's a great sort of middle ground here because the, the lyrics are absurd enough that on the surface you could just laugh at them. Like, there are some great 
hilarious phrases. I especially love like looking at the lyrics of this song again. I love the uh, line that when I'm with you, I don't know whether I should study neurosurgery or go to see the Care Bears movie. That's my least yeah. favorite, least favorite I line. I, I'm like on board for the first half. This isn't. I just must have an aversion to Care Bears because it's that the Care Bears movie part. I'm like, uh, oh, I don't see. know. That, I don't have a reason. Okay, so, so Care Bears were, we're uncanceling Paul Rubens, but we are canceling Care Problematic. Bears. Problematic. No, can't stand for that. Nope. Care Bears, the sequel is very important to me. I got to tell you, I have <laughs> no opinion on the Care Bears. I, I have some strong opinions on the Care Bears. <laughs> All right, no, gonna... so the fun, fun fact with the Care Bears movie, just a side note, that movie outperformed... <laughs> whatever Disney had released that same year. And that was like what made them realize that maybe they needed to put more focus on advertising. It. Cause it was like, it was right where they were like trying to like shove the animation team out. <laughs> and like, I think it was Oliver and company or something or great mouse detective, great mouse detective underperformed to the care bears. movie, <laughs> And wow. they were like, Oh no, we're really, we're losing our, our footing as Disney. <laughs> if the care bears are beating us out in the box, I do have office. opinions about the great mouse detective. I enjoyed that. It's fantastic and underrated. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> underrated. I, I have one other uh, trivia fact about the care bears movie. Oh my which God. Is, uh, I didn't know that, but I did know that uh, that is the movie that Paul Rubens was watching in the. Oh film. no. Oh, <laughs> yeah. You're making it worse. You've no. recanceled oh. <laughs> None of this is usable. This is oh, Matt's no. hardest editing Guys. job ever. No, no, no. <laughs> this is going to be great, though, because we can just. This will be that. Uh, no, just don't edit it. Just do a different guest. Do it over. <laughs> but when the show's popular. When the show's huge, the long lost episode. I'll take the <laughs> here's what yeah. the, the screen recording that I'm taking right now. I'm gonna put that out. We're gonna myself. we're gonna use this episode to get Danny Elfman on the show to talk about this track. That's it. That's what we're gonna do. Finally. So if you're hearing this, you're Danny Elfman. <laughs> <laughs> also, Phil, I think you the following should... <laughs> podcast is for Danny Elfman only. Yes. If you're not Danny Elfman, please turn turn it down. Skip. Can we add that, Matthew? Can we put that in the beginning? Just a yeah, warning. absolutely. Of Just course we can. Of course we <laughs> can. That's no problem at all. Is for Danny Elfman only. <laughs> Hi, friends. The world got you down. Don't be sad. Listen to Two Dollar Late Fee with Zach and Dustin. Two Dollar Late Fee is the podcast that celebrates the best decade of entertainment, the 1980s. We pick a movie and soundtrack from our youth that we loved and see if it holds up today. We also interview your favorite celebrities from that era. All in the spirit of positivity and togetherness. Check us out at $2LateFee.com. This might be the most tangential episode we've ever done, but I would just say I, I was so surprised. And I, I guess, Matt, you've backed this up. I was stunned that when doing research for this episode to find that people did not like this song. I did but not I think, think that was the thing. I didn't realize that this yeah. was a divisive track. But I think you're right that this is that it's a lack of understanding of the actual homage that it's playing. It might be. <laughs> like, and, you know, again, I don't want to like everyone's yeah. allowed to have their own opinion about it. If it just doesn't do it for you, then that's totally fine, of course. But I'm surprised that and I, I, my assumption is that it's just Oingo Boingo is not a reference that many people know. But if you do sort of like this song and don't know Oingo Boingo, then as Phil just pointed out, the Nothing to Fear album is the closest representation to this sound wise um, that you can get. But also a lot of it, like you also mentioned, Only a Lad, which is a great, great record. Oingo Boingo have a lot of super solid records from like, you know, basically anything they put out in the 80s, even into the early 90s was was really, really enjoyable. 
I, th I think. And I think it's very much like Devo, like Talking Heads, like all, uh, the B-52s. We've talked about this before. Bands that have a very particular aesthetic that you can tell Al is really drawn to. He likes bands that manage to sound different and unique in some very specific way. And Oingo Boingo definitely Considering that they are a new wave band, like many others, they have quirks and weird little qualities to them that you just feel like are only theirs. Yeah, absolutely. It's also worth noting that, like, he's paying an homage to an era of Oingo Boingo from, like, the early 80s. Mm -hmm. While this is the late 80s that this album's coming out, and sure. for most people, their their connection with Oingo Boingo is way more reserved. It's yeah. like Dead Man's Party and like Goodbye, Goodbye, Goodbye from, from Fast Times mm -hmm. or Weird Science. Like Those songs are not nearly as chaotic it's true. as the reference point that Al's pulling. So Interestingly, even if you knew... Oingo Boingo, you might, if you knew Oingo Boingo is a radio band, you would not hear this you song and be like, this. oh, this is Oingo Boingo that that's, he's doing homage That's to. funny because that's similar <laughs> to what he did with the B-52s, totally. as I just yeah. mentioned. Like when he does, Mr. Popeil is definitely more of an old, old B-52s reference than what they were putting out at the time. Um, yeah. That would have been, uh, in 3D was, you know, earlier 80s, but that was the point where they were doing stuff more like Love Shack. Well, Love Shack's 90s. Love Shack's dude. 90s. Love Shack's 90s. So he would have been kind of on point with that one because at that point they would have had Rock Lobster in like 78 and Private Idaho would have been like 80, 81. But Love Shack is like wow. 89, 90. Yeah. Because <laughs> I know Rock Lobster predates it. I, I always think that Popeil has like the most in common with that track with rock lobster, yeah. but uh, you're it's right. Private like Idaho is also years, in there. It's, it's definitely yeah, in that six same years kind after of both of those singles almost. So there you go. Yeah. yeah. I think that uh Popeil, well, let's make it a Popeil episode. Now it has the, <laughs> the punkier production sounds of that early uh, B 52. I generally connect with the most though, which is part of yeah. what makes it so fun for me. True. Yeah. True, true, true. Um, but circling back to this song, uh, there was one point <laughs> I was thinking, which was just that this is one of those great, style parodies insofar as it's a real look into Al's personal taste and the music he likes. And like you said, you know, the, um, the reverence he has for these bands that have a very specific style of production, of arrangement, of songwriting. And also I think the fact that it's not especially timely, like he's doing this album to sort of Oingo Boingo sound eight, nine years too late for that to be what people think of. He's just doing this for himself, mm -hmm. that is what that says to me. Yeah, that goes along with what I was talking about with the B-52s. That's the much better way to say that, which yeah. is like it's more about something that's just important to him that he's choosing to do at this moment where he has the time. Side note, I just have to point out, like, Love Shack came out in 89. I just okay. I had to double check just because I was like, "There's did that really come out in the 90s? That was just exploding my brain. 89, yeah, very, close. 89 and very no, no, close. And, and, and <laughs> the years, you're absolutely right. He definitely wasn't referencing it. It was years before that. <laughs> but still, I just had to. Um, <laughs> I couldn't accept that Love Shack came out in the 90s. <laughs> I just all I remember is because Rome was on that same album and was like in so many car commercials. Right. Yeah, that's true. Um, but uh, the the other thing that I think is worth analyzing also is we're looking at this through the lens of, well, in 1988, people would know Oingo Boingo, right? But the reality is on this call, there are three people who probably didn't discover Al until the mid to late 90s. Yeah. So by the time we're going back in time, the reference point for Oingo Boingo is even less. 
And you have to imagine there's a huge chunk of Al fans that that is the almost every person that we've had on this show so far is in our age demographic. Yeah. Which means that unless they were the music nerds that the three of us clearly are, they don't really give a fuck about who Oingo Boingo is. So well, they're and just that's, listening and that's what's interesting. That's why that I lens. wanted to like go over yeah. it as well, too. It's funny because, again, like for me, I heard this. And as you said as well, Phil, when I heard this song, I was like, oh, this is I love yeah. this aesthetic that he's going for. Um, and I didn't know who Oingo Boingo was. I just thought like the sound of this song was so yeah. interesting and chaotic and like I it it spoke to me without the Oingo Boingo reference. I can appreciate that some people just found it jarring and <laughs> not not well, fun yeah. for the same reasons. You Through know? a certain lens, this song could be very irritating though. Yeah. You know what I sure. mean? Like if you think about like the like do 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 like playing over mm-hmm. and over and over again, the weird like noise every once in a while sure. or just the chorus being over and over and over again him just yelling you make me that's what you do to me like mm-hmm. i could see this being i could understand why someone would hear this and feel like it's nails on a chalkboard in their brain like that it's just too fucking much yeah, i can't <laughs> yeah i can't yeah. i just i'm no, i'm all in i'm all in. i'm just yeah. like no who would hate that much mallet percussion? That's insane. <laughs> <laughs> I would strongly encourage people, I, I mean, as we're sort of uh, narrowing in on that, I would encourage people, if you have not heard this song in a while, if you remember it not fondly, mm-hmm. I would encourage uh, a re-listen. I think this yeah. is, I, I, I mean, I'm, I guess, revealing my hand a little bit now as we approach ranking time, but like, I, uh, I think this is great. I really do. I think it's a really well-written song. I think as a style parody, it is as good as most of his best but i also feel like you could probably still appreciate it whether you know the parody or not but often knowing the style parody and then revisiting his gives you a better appreciation for just how unbelievably good his band is at at making these tracks like it's it's really yeah it hits all the marks especially of that record yeah. yeah, and Phil, you brought it up once before but i will repeat it like jim west's little guitar solo in this oh. is like perfect it's, it's excellent it's, yeah perfect i've had issues no i haven't had issues but i've had moments with the guitar at other moments in al's career where i went that's not really the exact vibe of what i think that that person's guitar solo sound like but it fits the song you know mm-hmm. um, and also yeah. just talking about that in a broader sense than just guitar or style or sounds or stuff i think this is a good example of an al song where He's not really going. There's a specific moment that I want to, a timestamp I want to reference, but throughout the song, he's not really going for a vocal impression of Danny Elfman. To me, when I listen to it, the True. rhythmic style and stuff like that, he does go for, you know, with the do 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 to me and stuff like that. But overall, his vocal style is his own. It's what I hear as his sort of home base That's vocally, true. except. Uh, at two points, and the first one's around like uh, a minute and 40, he does the most mind-blowingly perfect, and this is my favorite moment in the whole song, the most mind-blowingly perfect vocal impression of an Elfman guttural yell with a bunch of growl to it with a, that's what you do to me. That's what you do to me! That's what you do to me! And then he goes back to singing like Al. But I love that, and I love how this Mm. almost feels like Al giving himself a chance to be the singer of Oingo Boingo rather than to do an impression of the singer. Of- I like yeah. that. I, that's that's a really good observation because in most of these cases, like if we're going to talk about um, the B-52s, he's clearly doing Fred Schneider. Yeah, and if we're time. talking about Dare to be Stupid, he's clearly oh. doing 
Mark Mothers, but he's definitely yeah. singing like these people. Dog Eat Dog, Total Burn Impression. Dog Eat Dog definitely has David Byrne in it. Mm-hmm. You're right. But this definitely is sung more like just a Weird Al original. Yes. Than, like Everything uh, You Know Is Wrong is such a perfect TMBG yeah. song compositionally. But vocal style? No, not at all. Sings at his own yes. voice. Yeah. I think that this might be where that starts to happen more. I, yeah. I feel like as we look into the, as we move on from even worse, I think that Al after this album, especially because how successful it was and the fact that the originals got so much critical praise, I'm wondering if we're going to start to find that he does way less vocal impressions of the artists from this point on and like is way more confident in like, no, this is this is a Weird Al song. Like, this is how Weird Al will sing this song. Yeah. I love that, though. Oh, I do, too. I do, too. No, I think that's that's great. Because, again, at a certain point, it's like, if you want to do that with certain songs, like some people have, like, okay, you're, you're going to do a B-52 song and you want to do a Fred Schneider impression. Like, that's part of, I, I get you need that yeah. to do a B-52's pastiche and not sing like that is almost That'd impossible. <laughs> yeah. It's not going to track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have to go for that element. But yeah, no, moving forward, it opens the door for him in such a big way that he can feel like he can just, like you said, I love that that way of putting it, Phil, like uh, that he gets to be the singer yeah, of this band 100%. that he loves. That's a great way to, to, to look at it. I think that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, Matt, I'm curious so badly where are you putting this on your on your list? You know, it's funny. I'm now looking at my list and I'm just staring at because we we kept talking about Mr. Popeil and I'm just looking at where Mr. Popeil is on this list and how this how I'm going to think about this in comparison to that. And I'm going to put this I'm going to put this a little bit below that, just a little. And I'm going to put this in between. uh, I'm going to put this just below Midnight Star and just above Christmas at Ground Zero. Okay. Okay, fair spot. I actually think I'm going to go higher than you on this one. Do um, it. I think I'm actually going to put this between This Is The Life and Dog Eat Dog. Just, I don't know, man. I, <laughs> I That's I top it. five. You just put it yeah, in the top five. That, we were just talking about five. people like ranking this song. So like, is this a top five or is this a bottom five? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a top five for me. Now, Phil, uh, I'm not sure if you have access to your email, but I sent you a screenshot. All right. Um, you get to do <clears> some <throat> ranking as well. <laughs> so we have an ongoing guest rankings which are completely nonsensical because there's no rhyme or reason to it but you get to look at that list and you get to tell us where you make me ends up on that list and add it bonus you can move around one song i love all of these or, or most of them at least but i don't love this order at all so because there's songs I like that I wouldn't place <laughs> You Make Me above that are further down the list, too. Okay, so I'm dropping Yoda. Where are you putting Yoda? At the bottom. All the way at the bottom? Yeah. Worse than Living <laughs> with a Hernia? Oh, I love Living with a Hernia. Okay, that is chaos, but yeah. I'll take it. Not in the photo, not photographed, is actually below Living with a Hernia is Girls Just Want to Have Lunch. Are you putting Yoda below that as well? No. I okay. <laughs> All right. Just making sure. I All love right, that. Then... I, that's that's one of my favorite uh, ranking moves that I have heard so far. That so makes me very happy. So you got one more minute, and then you make me. 
Yeah, and I think I genuinely actually, I'm not changing my placement. I think I like You Make Me Better Than One More Minute, but One More is fantastic, and yeah. they do belong together as his two love songs. Yeah, two wonderful love songs, so true. Both so track true. four. That seems to be his love song yeah. uh, spot on the albums, maybe. We'll have to look into that. <laughs> um, I, I want to point out one more thing about this song that I think is interesting. So Al brought back You Make Me in 2013 when he was doing the Alpocalypse tour, and he was playing it on that tour for the first time in forever, like since this record came out, but then didn't bring it back for the Vanity Tour. He didn't play it once on the Vanity Tour, which is really interesting to me, and I wonder... Why? <laughs> Did he tour on it a lot in general, though, over many years, or no? Not really, no. If you look at the the list of, the, like, he, so in 2013, when he was doing the Apocalypse tour, and 2012, he basically played it every night of those, of those runs. And then it, like, it popped up periodically. Oh, actually, you know what's interesting? Okay, when this record first came out, he didn't play it. The very first time he ever played this song live was in 2010. According to Setlist Whoa. FM. Wow. That's strange. So uh, at the time this album came out, I guess he considered it a deep cut. We all we know that he is, you know, the originals often get neglected um, when he, especially as he's building up a repertoire of parodies that are going to feel essential to play live. Um, so this got dismissed when the record came out and then he started to do it periodically on tours into the early 2000s. And maybe he just felt like he had done it enough at that point that he didn't want to include it in the Vanity Tour. I'm going to choose um, to believe that touring so heavy on it leading up to the Vanity Tour was the inception of the Vanity Tour. That like when when getting ready, when doing tour prep for Al... Al eh, which tour did he do it for? He did it for Alpocalypse. Alpocalypse, okay, yeah. yeah. So when he was prepping for that, he was like, you know what? I've wanted to do this one. It's been hard to just... I'm putting it in, you know, for me. Yeah. And then yeah. he enjoyed that so much that he was like, I'm going to do a whole tour like that. <laughs> do two full tours like that. I think that yeah. that... I, I don't know if he decided that, that at the same time, though. I don't know if he went, yeah. I'm going to do no. two tours like this. <laughs> I I think that it is possible that we never see the traditional Al Yankovic show come back. I, I think that he's having so much success on I these know. vanity tours. <laughs> I mean, even if he does... We've said this before, but I, I do think even if he does do a regular quote-unquote regular tour again the last yeah the last regular tour he did was the strings tour with the orchestras and that still had a lot less of the old school costume changes the uh video production he used to have this very every almost every song he did had a wardrobe change yeah yeah it was insane um, i mean it was i only incredibly got to see intense. that once but we were both there matthew even though we weren't friends yet we see that here we go now this is now we're really putting a bow on this episode <laughs> phil and i the first weird al show we both saw was together but not together because we were just happened to be in the same place mm -hmm. at westbury music fair uh that was running with scissors tour am i right about that absolutely yes running with scissors it was it was great and we talked about it after the fact but uh yeah we didn't we didn't know each other then i got invited to that show by the mom of a kid i was babysitting oh her husband couldn't go so i went with this kid i was babysitting and his mom and then me <laughs> to see weird Al. it was like a last minute like we have an extra ticket do you want to come and i was like yes it's actually it was great. So, one of the first shows I ever saw. I don't really know you, Phil, one way or the other, but I'd like to imagine that you're wearing a very Weird Al-like shirt yeah, in honor of are. this recording. <laughs> Could be. I don't know if that's your usual Could style. Be, no. but <laughs> I mean, I own well, it. It is your usual. No, I, yeah, you're right. I it's not say, my it's usual <laughs> style. This is a rental. So 
Guys, we gotta <laughs> we gotta hurry up because I'm paying by the hour and I'm about to go over the uh, hump. So oh, man, that's, true, that's true. That's true. The next hour, <laughs> it's you pay a premium. Then I did. Uh, I was going through, and I only just had this thought. I didn't prepare this, but it'll seem like it. So forget that I just said that and cut that out. But uh, I was recently going through my old cassettes, and I found my first Weird Al cassette, which I had my mom take me to. There's the food album. Take yeah. Take me to the wall, and I Ooh, I chose yeah. this, and I used my parents' hard-earned money to buy this cassette tape in 1997 or something. I don't know, but that's the first thing of his that I went and bought. Prior to that, it was taking a blank cassette to a friend's house. Yeah, my first, I think my first true owl anything was a someone made me a cassette copy of Bad Hair Day, uh, so. I got given a copy of Bad Hair Day by my parents for, uh, I think, for completing the fourth grade. Why? You know, not everyone does it. That's true. That's true. You know, I, I, I did deserve a lot of praise. My first parental advisory sticker was a gi- uh, album was a gift for finishing fifth grade. Oh. He said, you're now a boy. You're going, you're, going to, you're going to middle school. And I said, I would like that sublime self-titled. That's, um, that's a young music nerds bar mitzvah, actually, is that you get your first parental advisory sticker in fifth grade. Yeah. It's traditional. Yeah. Well, Phil, it has been a blast. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh Talking about all the faults that you found in You Make Me while listening to it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I kind of wish that you had twist. I kind of wish that you hadn't discovered the uh, the correct uh, reference points, and you came on this just being like, I, "We we have yet to have a guest on this show who's just like outwardly hostile." I thought about that. I mean, who's like, I, I, I would, picked this song because it sucks. I, I would love someone to be like, "I picked this because it's my least favorite." <laughs> I know that hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. I'm I'm ready for it. That when someone does do that, I'm ready to. It'll take be a them repeat down. guest. I will put money down that it will be one of the guests, like second, third, or fourth time on the show. They'll be like, you know what? I think it's time. No, to this is. I, I want I want someone to come on like that, and I want that person to be Danny Elfman. <laughs> Again. Danny yeah, Elfman. Danny, you heard the, know, the disclaimer at the front of the episode. We know you're listening, Danny. <laughs> we can't wait for you to come on and tell us all the bad things about this song that Phil almost said, but then his changed turn. his mind. And also, about. honestly, I'm just angling to bring up the uh, the problematic content so that you get fewer <laughs> guests, and I get invited back, and I can trash all of these songs <laughs> that... Uh, the, there so. you go, yeah. Um, Phil and I play in a band together uh, called Grim All Day. Um, which is not uh, the most Weird Al uh, similar group that uh, exists, but I would recommend checking out. It's I, I'm very proud of it. Um, and Phil does all kinds of other things, and he's got a website you can check out. Um, it's www.cpz.fyi. Thank you for joining us, Phil. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the, the preceding podcast is for Danny Elfman only. Thank you for your service. listening to the Geekscape Network.